my name is Mark DeYoung. I'm the Dean of Christian Formation here at Northwestern College, and I'm joined by four of my favorite people, uh, one former colleague and three current colleagues, uh, Tamara Feinart. She's our VP of Marketing and Enrollment here at Northwestern. Jason Leaf, Professor of Practical Theology. John Bonnerbrugge, a New Testament scholar and also Dean of Humanities and former professor, retired professor, Karen Barker. And uh, so we've been, we've been talking about this communication, the, the expression, the, the uh, translation of how we take our gospel confidence as, as, as the church and as, as the people of God. And how do, we, how do we engage with the world around us? It's pluralistic. It's different. There's even disagreement, obviously, politically, socially, on so many levels. But even within the church, how do we engage across differences and disagreement within the church and within the broader community? And so let's lean into that conversation and, and pick up right where we left off last week as we, uh, as we continue ahead. Pivot a little to the left, and I'd be really curious, um, Karen and, and Dr. Leaf, uh, what, what you two are thinking about this, um, Jason, because you're familiar with Andy Root's work, um, and, and Karen, just given your background and love for storytelling. But Tim Keller, earlier in this book, he talks about how he really is is speaking into what what Andy Root from Luther Seminary is speaking about which is that we're kind of in this age of authenticity and a part of what comes with the age of authenticity is words, uh, words don't become a means that put us on this quest of finding the truth that's sort of outside of us, but rather words become a means of becoming more attuned with how these words either express accurately and with validation or maybe don't express accurately or validation and that somehow truth is sort of this thing tied to my own self-expression. So I look inward when I'm pursuing truth as opposed to looking outside of myself and kind of our post postmodern context, age of authenticity, right? Um, and there's definitely some critique um, that's fair, but maybe perhaps actually some new opportunity but I'd just be curious, yeah, what's the, what's the good, kind of the bad and the ugly of, of this age of authenticity uh, that we're in? And, and, and how does the context of an age of authenticity, what does that mean for us as Christian leaders as we think about um, engaging and potentially leading um, in this, this greater context as we think about our words? How about it, Jason? So, so, you know, for Andy, when he's talking about this, he's basing it on the work of Charles Taylor, uh, the secular age, and talks about the shift from the 1500s to today, where we basically lost a sense of transcendence, and we've become closed off. And so we're closed off now within these kind of imminent, he calls it the imminent frame. And, and so things like politics and economics and all of these things now have this new kind of, of uh, urgency or power or invested with meaning. Um, but as are other things, so you can think pop culture, you can think of, again, language, um, and, and so on. And so I, I think there's something to bemoan or to lament in the loss of transcendence, which is this loss of otherness, right? This loss of there's something else out there besides me. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that Andy does so well in his work is 
and he uses Bonhoeffer to do this, is to recognize now that everything has been pushed back down into kind of the imminent frame. But is there a place and a space for us to, to find transcendence within this imminent frame? And so Andy uses Levinas and, and Bonhoeffer. I'm actually having students tomorrow in one of my youth ministry classes. We're reading a, a piece on Levinas and, and Bonhoeffer to talk about the other and to open up the possibility now of recognizing our responsibility to one another. And this is where that whole kind of idolatry and the way that language uh, controls and so on, I think is really important. And, um, you know, uh, Andy and others would, would talk about the need for us to become good atheists. And by atheists, it doesn't mean we don't believe in a God, but it's the God that we construct, the God of our own making, the God that our language and our concepts can create that merely just reconfirm the status quo in which we live. And how does that get broken open? And for for Bonhoeffer, it's broken open through encountering my neighbor. Mm. And this was a place I was going to go a little earlier where, you know, I think we got to be careful that silence and darkness and Sabbath don't mean checking out, checking out because we're called to, we're called to responsibility. We're called to love God and love neighbor. And so how does silence and Sabbath and so on becomes something that cultivates a strength grounded in the resurrection of Christ, where we can become a non-anxious presence in the midst of all this anxiety, where we can take responsibility for our neighbor and stand up to these, you know, I would just call them these demonic principalities and powers at work in the world that are naming and controlling and, and dehumanizing. Um, and so that's the positive, I think, of, of this age of authenticity is this move back to the imminent mm-hmm. and that now as a Christian community, we need to take responsibility for our neighbor in the context of all of these, these relationships mm-hmm. and open up a new possibility of transcendence in Jesus Christ. So for Bonhoeffer, you know, Christ is present. When we love God, when we love our neighbor, God is present. We're loving God. Christ is present in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that uh, provides us a, um, an opportunity. Yeah, that's so good. I think Henry Nowen says something similar where, yeah, the the richest the the richest experience of Christ is the Christ between me and other. And Christ is what opens us up to one another. Yeah. The cross, right? It's it breaks us open. So I try to tell my students anyway. So we can live in the life of resurrection. Because the resurrection life, you know, why is it the gospel writers have such a hard time? I mean, Jesus is walking through walls and doing all this crazy stuff. And part of it is our language can't fully capture and falls short. And so the, the gospel writers are trying to capture that resurrection life in a way that uh, makes the most sense to them. Anyway, I, I've, said, I've said too much. I must be silent. Karen, what are you mulling on? I can't, I can't speak to this um, theologically, but I can speak to it as an artist. and. And the need and desire for this authenticity, here, here's what I'm seeing, that in the name of authenticity, I put my authentic self out there. And sometimes the result is it's simply a therapy session on social media. It's not my story storytelling, writing, songwriting is an art form and it it takes skill and discipline to do those well. So 
the ideal would be that I hear your story and I tell your story in a way that honors your story, honors you, and then draws other people into the story so that we have both this authenticity, this is about me, and the ability to draw other people into the story. That's, that's the ideal. And I think that, so the, the authenticity, I mean, I, I do see quite a bit of this on so, social media. This is my authentic self. I'm just going to put it out there. And that's, I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with the therapy session. It's just not, it really doesn't invite other people in. It invites other people to help me in my angst or issues or whatever's going on for me. And that's a good vulnerable thing to to do. I'm not trying to diss that. But I am saying that if I am a good wordsmith, my job is to take that story and transform it into not something that still doesn't belong to you, but something that belongs to everybody mm. or, or can in any way speak to other people. Mm. That's so good. And I think that resonates with uh, a line that stuck out to me from, from Lecrae uh, as, as the storyteller in the book. Lecrae, he says it this way, stories help us develop meaning. Even if we get the story wrong, we have closure on the why. The way we see the world is shaped through story. And I, I, I heard you leaning into that in a, a really beautiful way, Karen. And then he goes on to say, it's actually easier for us to believe a false narrative that fits our outlook on the world than a true narrative that shakes and shatters our perspective. And that is true regardless of where we stand. Um, and so as I heard your rhetoric, you know, calling us to something bigger than even ourselves, big, bigger than, you know, from not from a framework of right or wrong, but from a framework of narrative and story mm-hmm. that, that deeply connects in, in, in our humanity. I'll, I'll throw this in that, you know, uh, Christian proclamation from its very beginning um, was a story. It was a narrative, um, especially, especially not, not even, it, and when I say the very beginning, I'm talking about um, uh, prior to the actual writing of the Gospels. A lot of people forget that the, the earliest documents written in the New Testament are actually Paul's letters, not the Gospels. Um, but even Paul is doing the narrative. He's expounding on the narrative. It's the narrative of uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then when the gospels come on the scene, they, they, they come on the scene as story, um, as the account, the narrative of, uh, of this life and, and, um, and its significance. So, so it's been said a lot that Christian faith is not based on just a set of propositions. And it's true, but uh, it also didn't originate with propositions. It originated with a narrative. Just going to add to you know one of the interesting things that we talk about in some of my classes is how we're at this stage within our our culture uh, where I, I would talk about it as the commodified self that young people feel the need to commodify themselves to and to make themselves consumable. 
And so they're caught within this, this cycle of a fast moving cycle of constantly putting out their so-called authentic self, which raises tons of questions whether that's true, but they're presenting themselves in a way to be consumed by the adult world. And it, it's, it's such a fast moving thing, whether it's educational institutions, the business world, pop culture, and I would even say the church, we're guilty of this, you know, setting up moral standards, doctrinal standards, what makes a good, you know, young Christian person. And they want to live up to these, these types of things. And so the types of narratives and stories that they're creating are ones they're hoping will be consumable. And so how do we help tell the biblical narrative and story in a way that can break through that uh, in the way that, you know, Karen is, I think, talking about? I'm, I'm struck by we talk about um, the way the way students um, or not students, young people, anybody who's on social media, the way you sort of curate your life, tell a story about it that I think we all recognize is fiction in a lot of cases. Um, and yet in my family, we talk about the, the truth that's possible in story, the truth that transcends the facts of the story. And I'm remembering reading about... Um, uh, neurological research, and I can't cite the neurologist or where I saw it, but the this within a family, so whether it's the Christian family or it's your own family, my family are storytellers, that telling the story over and over reveals a truth that transcends what actually happened, but it rewrites this. Every time you tell the story, it rewrites the memory in your mind. It deepens it and it broadens it and it adds layers that weren't there. When, with the actual event and the truth that comes out of that, some of it factual, some of it that transcends factual or the facts um, is such an important thing. And we talk about how social media enables you though, to tell such a, such a fiction. Um, so there's this, you've got these, this wide gap, right? Karen talked about the, the posting or the social media, that's the therapy session all the way to the, the interaction with social media, that's a complete fiction. I don't know, where's the truth in there? You know, is it, and is it the lack of care that then eclipses any kind of truth, any kind of shared community? This idea that care with communication is for the community. Where, where, where is that happening? And how can, we ha- how can we enable that to happen more? I'm not sure social media is. A platform for that. <laughs> wow, that's that's really good, Tamara. It's a reminder that social media itself is not a neutral medium. You know that that there's there's a bent, and yeah, as you said, what the retelling of a narrative that kind of makes me jump back to building on what Karen said earlier, and connecting it to what I heard Shil Baraka say earlier this morning to our students where he said, he was talking about the vocation of work. And this connects with the commodification comment from you, Dr. Leaf, but the vocation of work, when it gets reduced from a vocation to a job that gets us a certain level of wealth, then we turn our belief in God, we really minimize our belief in God and turn God into someone who's just a slumlord. If our job is just about wealth, he's a slumlord. But if our our job is is a greater picture of work tied to a calling and vocation. What does that say about the, the God we know? And I think similarly, what you're saying, Jason, connecting to what Tamara's saying, 
are the, the means by which we communicate and the care and camaraderie that's experienced in that, that in and of itself, what does that communicate about our God who is the logos and expression of divinity, the person, Jesus Christ. And the expression of humanity. And that also is really important. What does it mean to be a human person? And I think we can forget, we forget about that. Amen. Amen. Yeah. God's uh, what, what I hear, what, like I'm a Seinfeld fan. And do you guys remember the episode about the pig man? He was 50% pig and 50% man. So I heard somebody say that Jesus wasn't 50, 50. He was a hundred percent and a hundred percent. Right. So <laughs> it's a good reminder. So pivoting a little bit, you know, Lecrae talks about what leads to turning villains or turning people that are villainous in our eyes to becoming more villainous than maybe they are, or, or, or even seeing the heroes in our lives as maybe a little bit more heroic than they actually even are. He, he talks about the separation of uh, the, secular, the, the secular and the sacred as as sort of the foundation of what leads us to do that as we think about the stories where we we overly deify our heroes and we maybe overly villainize if that's even the right word um you know our enemies um the separation of secular and sacred how have you guys seen that play out do you, do you think lecrae's onto something there i i mean there's there's no question that he is right. I mean, we. This is. I don't. I just want to say this is why we're in the mess we're in. We we've just so bifurcated characters and people that we. You know, you can't. If you don't agree with me a hundred percent, then you're evil. I mean, so yes, of course. It's it's not everything else that that we read in this section would indicate that that's that it's not good. It's not the way we should be behaving. It's not the way to use words. In the translator uh, chapter, the story about uh, the friend that got appointed by the governor to co-chair the Ferguson Commission, I, we we change our views of people when we hear their stories. We just do when when we experience when we can get into. I mean, maybe I can't go to Ferguson. Maybe that would not be my lot. But if I can hear the stories on all sides, if I can hear them without spin, just hear them mm-hmm. using words, I would be a different human being. It would change who I am and how I view the world. It's, it's important. It's so important. This, this is why I wanted to add that emphasis that Jesus was fully human, because when we so emphasize the divinity of Christ and don't recognize the affirmation of our humanity and the affirmation of our finitude, that you know, I try to sell students all the time. We, we sometimes conflate being human with being sinful, and that's not what total depravity means. It's recognizing the humanity of one another allows us to be generous to one another. It allows us to see the humanity in, in, in each other and try to overcome these ideological towers, again, that we lock ourselves into. But that does take getting to know one another and hearing stories and, and sitting across the table and you know, there was, there was, there's somebody who shall remain nameless local community who it just could be a pain in the rear, just constantly calling people out, all that kind of stuff. And I just decided to call him up and go out for coffee. So we did. And this person was talking to me about how the, his mother-in-law just died. So we spent the first 25 minutes 
talking about death and and trying to you know give care and and understand one another and um it's those moments that allow you to humanize each other and if we're never putting ourselves in a situation to have those moments, that's, I think, contributing to our divide. That, that very thing really happened. Um, I described earlier participating in this conversation and there were, it was, it was a big group for trying to have conversation. There were eight of us for purposes of the experiment, if you will, for Trump supporters, for non-Trump supporters. And we spent as I said, close to 18 months, kind of meeting once a month, uh, every other month on various topics, political topics. The first, we had, to, we had to regroup after the first couple of sessions. We didn't know each other very well and we had kind of dived right in on some issues and uh, we were not getting very far. We were not being very careful or respectful and we all had to kind of own that. Part of our regroup was just to go back and start over with getting to know each, just telling each other our stories. Similar to how you started this, Mark. Why are you here? Why is this important to you? What, what have been your past experiences interacting with someone who was politically on the other side of the aisle? And by the end, um, the other thing that we, we had to do is, and talk about taking care with communication, is come to each session with something written out that we had taken time to think about in order to express ourselves so that it did not devolve into what the uh, debate devolved into last night, for example. Hmm. But by the end of the 18 months, the moderator, uh, I mentioned Harold High, you know, took us all out to celebrate sort of having gotten through this experiment without injury or insult. Well, some insult, no injuries. But we weren't friends by then. And some of the people in that group who are who have wildly different political views, you know, by that time could kind of joke around and tease each other. And it took the sting out of all of the things, you know, even when we were talking about hot button political issues, it took that edge off because we knew each other and we were friends with each other. But the amount of time and work and intention we had to put into that and we kept referring to it as our experiment. It, it was hard. And I thought there would be a good payoff in terms of interacting with family members who have different political views, because those, I, I do know them and I do know their stories, but um, that hasn't been entirely successful yet. I, I think uh, as I hear you process, it reminds me of a colleague of ours, uh, Ron Franklin often says, you can't, you can't hate someone whose story you know. And uh, yeah, and obviously I know you guys aren't engaging with, with Harold from a vantage point of hate, but just, yeah, the, the power of even what Jason was uh, exemplifying of, yeah, someone who, yeah, I don't think you're saying you hate them, Jason, but just a, yeah, a pain in the rear, I think was how you said it. So uh, yeah, but just to, to sit down over a cup of coffee. I'm curious on a more macro level, you know, Sarah Groves puts it this way, that culture isn't a war to be won, but a garden to be cultivated. And so our personal relationships, aware of each other's personal stories. But as we think about, let's zoom out systematically and think about our cultural narrative and coming to grips with our cultural narrative. How does our engagement as Christians in that cultural narrative 
to have like a wartime mentality as opposed to a gardener who wants to just get their hands in the soil and labor. I, I love I loved that metaphor. I'm struck by, and, and even just within politics, how much we've turned it into a contest where we cheer for public servants like we cheer for our favorite team. And we take it that's, yeah, we've turned, we've turned that into a war contest the same way we've turned um, struggling over culture into a contest to be won versus, as you said, a garden that we all have to, uh, that sustains us all, essentially. That's a really good parallel, Tamara, that our public figure, figures have almost become like this loyalty tied to our favorite sports team, the the competitive spirit as opposed. Yeah, that's I, well, I and think that's good. As as and and at times an irrational loyalty. Yeah. Based in you know. <laughs> fictitious or, or un, unreal hopes for success. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me test something out here. I, I'm also, when I read, when I read some of this stuff, I have to admit, I kind of thought it came off as elitist. I mean, it, it's all nice and well, and I, I'm speaking as a, as a professor and realize what being a professor opens up for me and what it provides for me. And so the, the whole idea of a garden to me, I, I love the metaphor on one hand. On the other hand, I'm kind of thinking about blue collar everyday people who are in the muck and the mire. And I wonder if this doesn't come off as a little bit elitist. Um, I don't know. Maybe you could, I would love for the rest of you to tell me that, that, that that's not the right way to read this book. So the book not the metaphor overall yeah like like and i i don't mean to again names right language gotta be careful but yeah i i I wonder because when i think about when i think about the trump supporters that i know and the reason why they probably sat there last night cheering him on is because even though and it's irrational in the sense of you know trump being a blue collar that he's just not but they see in him somebody who can take on this elitist perspective that, um, so I wonder sometimes with the Christian community, if we can't get a little bit too whimsical in thinking about some of these things. I mean, are you poking at just, I mean, even Christ, the incarnation, and you just think about his embodiment. Are you suggesting like even the Christian faith or even this book, even this conversation, even me, Mason, if you need to call me out by name, you need to say that, man. I'm calling, my, I'm, I'm calling myself out. I mean, right. I, I think about my aunt who just died and I did her funeral and she's a, she was a huge Trump supporter and shouldn't have been because couldn't pay her medical bills, right? I mean, all the reasons why you would think somebody, but yet I think for her, um, there was a sense in which life just wasn't fair and that manifested itself in a particular kind of political posture. And I realize my, my vantage point is different. And how do we prevent as a Christian community, especially as an academic community, from, from uh, not being able to attend to the lived realities of people that you all know? I mean, these are family members. These are friends. And, um, and, and I want to say I love the book and I love the metaphor of a garden. So on the one hand, I'm there. On the other hand, 
I wonder if it doesn't come off or begin to move in that direction of, of elitism. But I'm having trouble tracking it. Is it the is it the garden metaphor itself? Is it sure. the fact yeah, the that we would... is, who has a garden? Is people who got time on their hands? People got time on their hands to go in the back and grow flowers and grow right. I mean, and and yeah. the majority of people in this world don't have that. They're they're do you come, do you come from do you come from farmers? Well, I don't come from farmers. I do. I come from farmers. (laughs) It's so easy to get whimsical about truth and gardening and, and, and we need to do live this way. And yet we're all caught in this world of where speaking truth has consequences. I mean, you know, if, if you speak truth, if I speak truth in a certain context, I get in trouble or I lose my job or I, you know, not allowed to preach or whatever. And, and so I, I, it just seems like it's this type of language doesn't really tend to the reality of the, the networks that we're kind of caught in and that other people are caught in. And, and people who then look at somebody like Trump and are like, you go, right? You may be a bully, but. I mean, haven't we read a bunch of books like this in the last, three years. I don't know. I, I feel like they are written for us and for those of us on this call. And, and as such are, I think, I think you're right. My issue is probably more they're They're all theoretical and I find, I find good in them and things that I say, Oh yes. And things that I even say, God, please, Teach me how to help the church be that. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, so I'm not, I'm not dissing the books. I'm saying they are not practical pieces of work. They are, they are theoretical and only marginal, only, only helpful in that they hopefully inspire us, people like us to then do, to change behavior, to make a difference on, on some level. Well, not, and not just change behavior, though. I'm, I'm obviously I'm all for that, but um, you know, all right. So I'm supposed to play the role of the translator here, and that—that's the sort of thing that Inazu is talking about. And we could we can talk about like how effective that that is, or how effective the chapter is. But the idea behind translating is also communicating it effectively to that audience. So. Um, uh, I'm not sure that cultivating a garden that see that didn't strike me as elitist at all. Hmm. That sounded me like hands in the soil. Right. Um, so, um, but if it's not communicating well to, to, to Jason, what, what is the, what is the metaphor that communicates that? Well, if, if it does communicate better to me, why is it communicating better to me? And, and that's all, that's all part of what Inazu means by translating. Sure. Um, and uh, so I, I felt like that, that was where I needed to kind of pipe up here and maybe say, all right, well, let's get to that and talk about how do we communicate these things, um, you know, in a way that's effective. You know, Karen, uh, you, not everybody who goes to see a play is going to become an actor. And you know this because you've, right, you've told me, but how can we get it so that the person who is there at that play can 
go to their neighbor and say, you should go to this play too. Or, or, or I have some money. I think that's a worthy cause. I want to support my local, my local uh, theater group. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's a different, that's a different thing. So how, how, if, if it is every book like this is going to be. I understand. I understand. But how do we quit? This is, this is the thing that I keep bumping up against. How do we stop preaching to the choir all the time? How do we stop the echo chambers where we place ourselves in these situations? So when I hold, it's always interesting. I go to a church and I speak in immigration. It's always the same people showing up and the people I don't have to convince. And, And so it's like, how do we begin to step outside of our own comfort zones and not seek necessarily everybody patting on the back? Oh, what a wonderful speech for the 20th time. But speak to people who disagree and differ, and and, and how do we put ourselves in a, in a position where we can translate? Jason, I think it's an, a wonderful question, and can I put it in the context of what we just read? Sure. Both from Sarah Groves and Lecrae, and I think they put it in terms of credibility. They asked the question, have we lost credibility? And, and I wonder, to your question, Jason, have we lost credibility with people that aren't quote unquote, like Anazu says, like our people, our echo chamber people, people that reflect us back to ourselves. And the interesting thing that Sarah Groves points out is she says, have we, uh, we, we talk about blessings all the day long, but we avoid lament. And so her point is, is that because of our lack of ability to lament as the people of God, we've lost credibility. And then I also kind of connected it to what Lecrae was saying in that he was differentiating between constructive and destructive anger. Yeah. Is there a constructive anger? And so I guess my question is, is to the frustration, valid frustration, good named frustration that I think I'm hearing Dr. Leaf point out is our inability to lament alongside our lack of kingdom imagination tied to constructive anger. Mm-hmm. Are those things potentially losing the sort of credibility as God's people, because we're not kind of sadness and we're, we're not able to. And so then, and again, I don't want to overly politicize it, but, but, but this is kind of the point of the conversation. When we see a, a strong political leader, I would say on both sides, you know, whether it's Trump or Biden and they're yelling at each other like crazy last night, they're, they're sort of giving expression to the lack of lament that we feel in our heart and maybe the constructive anger at the injustices or difficulties in our life or the lack of being heard. And so then we just kind of channel behind them, like Tamara is saying, where they're like our, our team and we wave our flag and undivided loyalty. Any thoughts? You know, I, I, I bring this up frequently in my classes when I'm talking about the Psalms and one of, one of the most prevalent Psalm forms is the lament. And I always ask students here, you know, when was the last time you were, say, at church or even P&W and you sang a lament? Just don't do this. Um, and and I, I suppose we could all start railing on, you know, uh, uh, kind of broader, especially, you know, North American culture. Um, but but whatever, whatever's going on there, we just don't do it. We don't we don't lament. I'll zoom it out in a different direction from, from say the politics and bring it to um, bring it to say higher education for just a moment. 
this is a gross overgeneralization, but lamenting is the domain of the arts and humanities. Karen, you need to say, I don't know what happened. Did, did you did you say that out loud or were you just mouthing that? I just mouthed it. Amen. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, this is the domain of the arts and humanities. And we. I, I love the STEM fields because when I drive across a bridge, that thing better hold up. <laughs> um, but the STEM fields are, are again, gross overgeneralization. They're about, here's the answer. Here's the solution. And a lament is, I just need to live in the question. David is crying out, God, where are you? God, where is the justice? And there's no, there's no perfect answer that's given. We, we live and we inhabit the question. You know, whatever your political views are, let's just say that didn't happen in the debate last night. And it's something that I think that, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is, if this is uh, something that Jason might want to respond to. You know, we, we here at, a, at an institution of higher learning, yeah, there's some, there's some eliteness to that. And yet we have this ability to help people live in the question. I think that's really well said, John. And it, I mean, yeah, what is preventing us? We probably don't have time to answer this to the length that we want to. But because I really do have one last question tied to Nazu's uh, chapter to close up our time in the next few minutes here. But it, th- does anybody have any thoughts to what John just said? I mean, what, what, what is happening in our culture? that is preventing or inhibiting or lacking uh, the energy and inspiration to lean into some of those questions, which, as you said, the larger, you know, just the humanities in general, they, they want to sit in those questions where constructive anger and lament find their home, you know, like what, what in our culture, why do we like simple answers? Or want clean, simple answers. I, I, I want to. I guess I want to push back a little bit and and say that theoretically, yes, that's what the arts and humanities should be doing. But let's let's face it, we're just trying to survive like everybody else is, aren't we? And we can talk about lament and like, oh yeah, we should lament and it should be. But how does that lament bring transformation? How does it bring change? I mean, can, do we sit and we say, oh, we're so sad that things are the way they are, and now I got to go on with my life? But isn't lament supposed to bring transformation? Isn't isn't constructive anger supposed to bring change? And I'm afraid that as a Christian community, we're just we're stuck in the status quo, and we don't see the the power of the gospel to actually bring change and transformation into this world, and and really to stand up to the principalities and powers of this world. And we don't do it because we need health insurance. We don't do it because I have a family to feed, right? that if we truly spoke truth to power in the ways that maybe the gospel is calling us to do it, we wouldn't have a job, but we, we got to, you understand what I'm saying? It's just, it's the way of the world. So I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious. You're not not pushing against lament and constructive anger. You're saying the ways to which we long for that, but, but we, but we don't want to mobilize in 
into the place that that will take us if we, we really want to pursue the change. Caught, we are all caught within the systems and structures and all simply trying to survive. And, and yet the gospel is calling us into this new way of life. And I, I'm, what I want to suggest is that the rhetoric sounds awesome and I'm there, but the difference between the rhetoric and the lived experience, there's a chasm. And, and how do we begin to actually bring it into the lived experience? We start by personally lamenting. If the church is not a place where I can bring my lament over my addict son, then I certainly am not going to be able to lament sort of nationally, right? Sure. I mean, the, the church has to be a place where I, you, we can say out loud, yeah, my child is involved in this. Mm-hmm. My husband does this to me. My, you know, what, whatever it is personally. And we don't do that. I think we're fond of saying, yeah, it's the Dutch culture kind of thing. But in truth, I, everywhere I've lived, it's like that. We, you know, we, we just don't do that because what are you going to think of me? I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad whatever. Right. So I think, I think it's too, I mean, I, of course you're right, Jason. We, we do have the structure of, of our culture puts us in a particular place, but if we lose the more high-minded rhetoric about what we're doing, it's the rhetoric that's going to call us to better and different and profound and life-changing and ultimately country-changing and global-changing stuff. It's the rhetoric that's going to actually do that. It's going to call me out of my tunnel vision of what I got to do tomorrow to, to put food on the table. Sure. You're feeling that way. You know, I mean. Yeah. 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 No, no, I, I, I'm all for the rhetoric. I, I'm with you. And so I know this isn't me railing on the rhetoric. It is a question of, of bringing the, bringing our rhetoric and our lived, our action together that, how do we begin to, and I, I, I love what you just said about the, the personal, that you have, it has to begin. I always tell the immigration story about how they always say, well, how'd you get involved in immigration? I put up a trampoline in my backyard and a bunch of Guatemalan kids came over and I got right. to know them. And it's that, it has to start there. So I, I, I think you're right. And I think that's a good pivot to just the final question where Nazu lands us is I think what's, between what you're saying, Jason, and what you're saying, Karen, is that the lived and the rhetoric stands the community of God. And I think Anazu is, is talking about these principles of, of patience, humility, and tolerance. Those three things that really ultimately are kind of low bar aspirations that find their telos in the, the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. Yeah, so to close, just any final comments as, as you think about us as God's people, uh, Anazu calling us to patience, humility, and tolerance, or tell us and faith, hope, and love. I'd like to hear from each of you before we close up this podcast. I'm not a fan of the word tolerance, I'll be honest with you. I think tolerance speaks to, I think it can be dehumanizing because what it's saying is, well, I'll put up with you. 
you know, I will tolerate you. And I just don't think that's what we're called to. I know that's not what he's, I know that's not what he's saying by that term. Uh, but love is not just toleration. Love is not just saying, well, all right, you do your thing and I'll let you do that. But love is about being open to our neighbor and taking responsibility for. And what does it look like for us to take responsibility for? And um, this is why I love Bonhoeffer. You know, Bonhoeffer says to us, you don't get to say that not my problem or I'm, I can't get involved. We just don't get to because we're called to love God and love our neighbor. Yeah, I'll piggyback on that and and I'll second it. And Mark, you and I have had some conversations before. You know that I that was my one of my big criticisms of Inazu's confident pluralism was um, that. And of course, that's that's where he's getting this from. Uh, it comes out of that previous book um, where he talked about those kind of three three responses that Christians should have. And I was actually pleased that in the intro to this one. At some point in there, he even said that, well, it, tolerance doesn't go far enough. Hmm. And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm with Jason on this one. It, 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 I've never thought that tolerance is a Christian virtue. Yeah. It's a secular virtue. And it's a widespread one right now. So, And I'll, I'll say this, along with the responsibility that we have for one another— I think the Christian virtue that that Inazu is is maybe searching for, and the one that I would bring to his attention, would be instead of tolerance, I, I prefer mercy. Um, mercy requires a much deeper, and it's much it's a much more difficult response, especially w- when someone is wrong. It takes, it takes love to its fullest extreme to be the one who has been wronged and yet who will also be the reconciler. That, that is, that's merciful and it's also godly. Hmm. That's good. I really loved Inazu's chapter. I, I want to live there when he said, Change, if it comes, often depends on relationships of trust that are built over time. So we're back to the, all of this takes time. Sometimes the relationships that lead to change will take a lifetime. So my, my investment is not, it's, my investment is my life. It's my, the call of my life. And that, I, I love that. And I think it's absolutely right. And I would, and I think investment is, is an, it's an, it's intentional. Um, I talked about how much time we spent conversation group that I was a part of. I do think that we lose credibility when we stay in our echo chamber, but I'm also very, I'm going to humbly admit how hard it is to intentionally interact with, with someone that you feel like you don't have anything in common with, but it takes that trampoline, right? We like to jump on the trampoline. We start there. We have something in common. It takes those kind of actions. I, I wish, yeah, in a, li- in a lifetime. I mean, the, the experiment that I participated in was very contrived, but we still learned some things. Um, we still kind of built community. Um, it took that contrived experience for, to convince me 
um, of my own deficiency and just actually seeking out and being intentional about knowing my neighbor, including the neighbors that um, I, you know, have a different political sign in their yard than I have in my yard. Well, Karen, Tamron, John, Jason, thank you all so much. Uh, this was a wonderful dialogue that I wish we could continue for many more hours to come and hopefully we can, but uh, this will conclude our podcast. Let me just conclude by a quote by Sarah Groves that I really appreciated. She says, we vote with our lives, our money and our time. And I think I heard you saying that Karen, this holistic, like this is casting our vote as Christians. It's not the clean check the box of a ballot our ballot is our lives and and how do we reclaim that in the public life uh reclaim the kind of credibility that looks like the incarnation of christ um you know as he got into the mud and muck of our lives how do we do that with one another and uh, propaganda somebody i really appreciated um his writing he's a he's a spoken word artist he's a culture curator and he says this that the gospel is making other people's problems my problems and I think that gets at some of the spirit of Bonhoeffer's um, challenge and charge uh, to us here a couple generations later. So now more than ever, uh, we need people who name reality and embody something that looks a lot more like Christ than what we're seeing. But um, yeah, patience, humility, to- tolerance, and yet oriented towards faith, hope, and love. Uh, this is the Christian call. So thanks again. Wonderful conversation. Thanks to our listeners out there. This concludes our fourth episode of our podcast, Common Ground, uh, a dialogue centered on Dr. John Anazu and Reverend Tim Keller's work called Uncommon Ground. I encourage you to get a copy of the book and read it. Um, this is a moment now more than ever for any listener out there to uh, continue to lean in uh, to this conversation because we want to be a gospel people, yes, but we also want to be a gospel people who are are, are merciful, as Dr. Vonderbrugge says, uh, merciful as we engage with people that are, that are different than us. And uh, leaning into the mutual spaces of how we can learn uh, with those who, who might disagree in, in that difference. So thanks to all you listeners out there. Hope you'll join us for our next episode next Monday. God bless.